Welcome to the Five Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hayes, and coming up this week, writer-director Tyler Savage. His new movie, Blinders, is playing the Austin Film Festival in this in two weeks, I think. Um, we'll have the, uh, the exact date on the, in the show notes. Uh, this is his second film. Fun fact, his first film uh, had an editor by the name Shane Hazen. Me. Yes, that's it. So you can imagine this conversation is a little familiar. Um, I haven't done one of these openings in a while. Um, and I feel bad just because I haven't, normally I'm watched something interesting during the week and I've talked about this on a few other episodes, but I feel like my viewing habits in the pandemic have just kind of gone all over the place. Uh, the, I, I, at this point right now, all my days are so pre-planned and regimented. I've got it down to where every other day is I'm either watching a new movie one day and then the next day I'll watch something that's, familiar kind of um baby blanket ish if you will so like last night i watched uh, michael clayton which is just really one of my favorite movies of the last 20 years and um i plugged it into letterbox afterwards and realized i had watched it eight times since it came out or i've at least just logged it i might have even watched it more um most interesting movie i watched this week i've been holding out on this but the Russian film Leviathan, which I, when it first came out, had had it highly recommended to me. And all I w- went on is the poster. And the all I can say is the poster is very misleading. And the movie was more interesting than I was expecting, which makes sense. But it was very apropos of the time right now because it was very... There was one shot in an early scene that I feel defines the movie where they're in a mayor's office and a clear portrait of Vladimir Putin is in the background. And it just feels like his, his specter hangs over the entire movie. Um, very well-made movie, as you might assume. I honestly don't have much to say about it. Let's, I haven't done one of these in a while because for a reason, apparently. So let's go ahead on to the interview with Tyler Savage. How are you doing right now during the COVID season? How, how are you feeling? I'm doing fine. I mean, I think uh, I'm lucky to have a great girlfriend and a great dog and a great living situation. And so, you know, I think it's been not as hard on me as it has been on some others. And my day job keeps me busy. So I'm still working, you know, uh, I, I work in, you know, that advertising sort of post-production industry. Um, so that that keeps me busy and keeps me sane. So you know, I certainly hope that some sense of normalcy or hopeless, you know, hopefulness comes back Hopeful. when we get hopefulness. That's a hard yeah. word to remember right now, but comes back you know, in November. It truly is. Days. Yeah. Uh, so wait, how, how long has the movie been finished, finished? The movie's been finished since about, I think, February, March, somewhere in there. We did a big cast and crew, friends and family screening uh, back in February. And that was sort of you know, right before COVID. And it was nice that we were all able to be together, you know, for that, at least since we're not able to be together at these festivals. Um, And then we had our world premiere uh, at Fright Fest back at the end of August. Where's Uh, Fright Fest at? uh, That's the the Fright Fest UK, the main. 
that uh, was when you got you got a bunch of good reviews out of that didn't you we got a lot of love out of that and it was really nice and it was nice because it was just it was also like fans on twitter were responding really well to it as much as we were also getting some nice critic reviews so um yeah we got a we got like 100 percent on rotten tomatoes with seven reviews right now out of the uk which i'm very happy about mm-hmm. and that's that's where we'll take that into Austin and then hopefully, you know, build on that. And, and you know. That's why you distinguished Austin, the Austin Film Festival, as your North American premiere. Because it's not it's not the world premiere, but you, you well, are. And actually, yeah, exactly. And, and Fright Fest actually geo-locked that whole virtual festival. So nobody mm-hmm. from the U.S. or North America could actually watch any of those movies. So. Huh. Um, so really none of the U S press has had access to it. So that'll be, you know, kind of fun. And then, um, yeah, we'll see what the reaction is, you know, both, uh, locally and, and, and in a larger press sense too, when we do it. What from a filmmaking filmmaker standpoint, what was an online film festival like, like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's obviously disappointing, right? I mean, it's not, it's not ideal. I would have, you know, I would have. What uh, is the networking like at an online film festival? Seriously. I mean, I think AFF uh, seems to be doing a good job kind of building out more networking inherently. They're doing like a lot of panels and a lot of things where, you know, people are exchanging contact information and they're doing, I think, a more thorough job. But, you know, with Fright Fest, you know, um, Paul McAvoy, who is one of the the um, the organizers and founders of Fright Fest, he did like a little Q&A with me. And, you know, I spoke to several of their team members. But then really, it was just some of the filmmakers either reached out to me directly or I reached out to them directly. And we sort of exchanged films and exchanged private links. And that was fun because that there was some networking there. Like we got nominated for um, best feature, best actor and best uh, and then we won best gore. <laughs> we won the best gore moment. But it was fun because, it, yeah, that was like that was the only real networking was amongst fellow filmmakers. I would say. Was there like a spreadsheet of email addresses? I mean, sort of. I mean, you could basically it could reach out to a contact and be like, "Hey, you mind making an intro?" But yeah, I had like three guys just reach out cold because they did exchange filmmaker email addresses, and that was sort of a nice thing. But but obviously nothing beats you know i'm talking to a former projectionist nothing beats being in a theater (laughs) with people watching your movie and feeling their reaction so i was disappointed but at the same time it was cool because heidi and i woke up at like you know 7 30 in the morning and the movie was playing you know because it was sunday it was playing in the uk as an afternoon showing and we were just able to search blinders on Twitter and see all of these fan reactions coming in while it was playing. So that was pretty cool. You know, it was fun to be able to see people responding to it. You know, but the, one of the film festivals I feel like even more so than South by Southwest that I'm familiar with is Austin Film Festival, because Austin Film Festival was just like an extremely open film festival. Basically, you don't have to spend any money as long as you're there in Austin when it's going on. And if you want to hang out at the Driscoll hotel lobby bar, you're going to potentially, if you buy enough people drinks, you'll eventually be buying Shane black drinks. Exactly. And like, you'll get into a lot of conversations. You get into a lot of conversations where it's like, Hey, do you want to hear my uh, uh, pitch about my uh, slasher movie about a mutant le- leper? You know, you'll, you'll hear that, but you also get a lot of people who are just like, I want to expand the branch of the three act structure. So it blows your mind. And all these people who really care about the art of screenwriting, because it's a heavily predominant screenwriter conference or festival. And the panels 
I think would translate well online. I think, I don't know. I mean, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I'm, I, I, you know, I've got the full badge and plan to be very active on all those panels and join as many, you know, uh, partake in as many of them as I can. But, but again, to your point, there's nothing that, you know, I would love to be buying people drinks at the Driscoll and chatting people up. That's where I want to be. But yeah. at the same time, I think you're right. Austin is a writer's community and, and it, it, it nurtures that community. And, and I think that that's why it feels like a really exciting launch for the film, because I do cherish and love screenwriting. And I do I do consider you really do. You fundamentally really do. a writer. And that's why, you know, it's a cool community to be part of. Whether we get to physically be there this year or not, I hope to be there again in the future. That's why I was so excited about you guys in such a high post at this film festival, because it is such a screenwriter, screenwriters festival, you know? So. Yeah. And, they, you know, we don't when you don't have a lot of, you know, star power or something necessarily in your movie, it's nice to be recognized for what the underlying, you know, structure of the story is uh, and have that be the thing that's sort of the centerpiece of it. Mm, OK, so l l let's get back to blinders later, but let's just go ahead, rewind back. Um, let's do some basic Wikipedia stuff. Where are you from? I am born and raised uh, San Fernando Valley, Los Angeles. I grew up in North Hollywood and so was sort of around the business, you know, growing up, but not in a super direct way. You know, I had some like friends whose parents, you know, maybe were a casting director or something. But uh, yeah, I'm from from Southern California and been uh, been in California my whole life. But I did, uh, you know, leave to go to college in New York and then spent a few years in Austin where I met you and a bunch of other wonderful people. I guess I, I I knew that, but I, I for some reason I thought I don't know if it's because of where you currently live that you were from south of the hills, not north of the hills. But what I mean, what area of town was do you, like what area of town was it in the valley? It was like North Hollywood. So basically, it was sort of you know like the, my my mom did work in Burbank, my dad did work you know kind of over the hill, more like you know in Hollywood or, or Beverly Hills area, and then um, yeah, but it was so it was it was North Hollywood, which is great because it's not. You know, P.T. Anderson's Deeper Valley part of the valley, mm. but but it is sort of so porn where... came later. Yes, exactly. We weren't in Torrance or like Reseda or Tarzana, though I did go to school, you know, with a lot of those kids. <laughs> so it was more what's cool about North Hollywood, though, is it's where, you know, the original Republic Studios was. It's where CBS still has a studio. It's still where Warner Brothers uh, and Universal are based. So it was more of just the allure of being around all the backlots and the, you know, the old Western, you know, facades and the, you know, the small, you know, the kind of, you know, fake, fake towns and everything that I think was um, the most appealing about it growing up. So do you remember your first movie? First movie ever saw? Ever. Uh, ever or ever in a theater. You can give two, one, you can give both. Right. First ever in a theater. I have a really bizarrely early memory of seeing A Fish Called Wanda at my friend's house with like, you know, it was not, it was a movie that I was obviously not supposed to see, but I remember you know, Kevin, you were Klein. old enough to be at a friend's house at that point. I was old enough to, yeah. I mean, I'm sure this was by this point, I was probably like six or seven. I'm sure I saw a movie or was in a room with a movie before that, but I remember that as an early one. And I also do remember seeing Child's Play at my house <laughs> when I was like seven or eight. And it was like my parents were amazing at doing things where it was like, yeah, we can, we can let them watch that one. And then it was like, you know, I remember no. just like hiding behind the couch midway through the movie. But uh, yeah, I think those are two 
two. Well, what was cinemas. what were your big theaters to check out or in that you went to? Growing up in the valley, it was all about City Walk. It was all about Universal City Walk. We would go there, like just be. We would, you know, get dropped off by our parents there for like eight hours, and you'd go just, you know, run around, spend fifteen dollar, you know, whatever fifteen bucks you had, and then like go into the movies. And it was a fourteen or sixteen theater multiplex. So then you would be able to, you know, try to, you know, sneak in two or three other movies after the one that you paid for, um, which was always that, fun. <laughs> I. I think the I haven't seen my I can't remember if I've seen much of the City Walk. I remember seeing Avatar my second time there because it was like the only IMAX in LA at the time. Yeah, but, that was I think that was the first big full official IMAX in LA, other than the the one that's at the Science Center. That's that that's near the big Universal Black Box building, right? Exactly. Okay, so um, what what were the other big movies from your childhood then? Um. I mean, I think growing up, the weird thing is I got really into older movies and I found comfort in like classic Hollywood kind of stuff, um, you know, and it was really just I guess it was just Turner classic movies and, you know, runs to Blockbuster. I don't really know where I got access to a lot of those things, but, you know, like literally like Public Enemy with Jimmy Cagney or like, uh, you know, uh, Little Caesar and, you know, or, or Key Largo or these sort of like dark black and white movies. I like loved that shit growing up. You were you were good going back to black and white films. I loved it. I loved it. I, I don't know why. I think there was something very escapist about it to me or something. It was just so like another world that you could go into. Uh, but obviously, I have super fond memories of the more obvious things, you know, the Goonies or Home Alone or things that were more marketed at me as a kid. But but yeah, by the time I was eight or nine, I was very much into older, older stuff. And I would watch I would obsessively watch like, you know, old TV shows, too. Like I would be on like Nick at Night or they had what was the one? Remember, they had Nick at Night and then they turned it into its own channel. What the hell was that called? TV Land. It was TV land on, on, on whatever satellite and those things, I don't know what it was. I think it's partially escapism. There was something about maybe I, I felt a little bit out of step with my time period. So I liked looking at other time periods. So wait, were you, I always remember Nick and nine TV land being comedy based. Were you watching episodic TV or the episodic drama, whatever they were putting out the time then and like figuring out the structure of like, uh, episode of the week stuff like that and or because i mean those things are highly structured and those are things that are pretty important to your writing too that's a really good point yeah i don't know i think you're totally it's a, it's a very fair point i mean the vast majority of its comedy i remember a lot of like green acres and laverne and shirley and stuff like that oh man uh, green, green acres like i i i had um my uh my great aunt was my babysitter from when i was three till i went to school and i just remember watching so much Green Acres and Beverly Hillbillies. Like, and it's so weird that I still have that database that I've never seen since then, but it's still it's Green still Acres. In there. We are there, you know? Absolutely. And that, like that, that theme song goes on and, it, you know, it, you immediately fill in the rest. I honestly think, though, with like, you know, where uh, writing and structure became, I had like a, at some point, like when I was like nine or 10, I got that AFI 100 movies of all time thing. And and that really was a thing that I used when I first got interested 
to be like, this is more interesting. I don't want to just be scattershot and pick a movie based off a cool title or a cool poster at Blockbuster, which is probably more of the path I was on before. And then I literally in like a one spring break went through like over a hundred movies in like two weeks. On and, the list? Yeah. Did the whole list. My mom, my mom had actually had hip surgery because she had this terrible thing. She had to have a her hip replaced and it was a huge, huge deal. So I would just like sit with her and we would watch movies. Um, and I, th and that, that, that uh, spring break where we just kind of binged the AFI 100 will always stick in my head as like the time I started really getting obsessed with it. Jeez. Like, I think I'm still like, I thought I was had a good percentage and I think I'm still like four short of finishing a list, but it's funny because this list is, has recurred so many times for, oh, yeah. it just, it's, it's not even necessary. It's close to our age limit, but like it, there's a good, you know, 10 year, like this was a defining thing because I remember at the time, like it was so poo pooed as a crass thing or just like, or the commercialism of a list that just doesn't reveal the breadth of all the nooks and crannies of film history and, and the personalities that made the art form what it is. And, and yet it just like, it was such an effective gateway for so many people, apparently. Exactly. I think that's exactly what it is. It was an effective gateway. I think any list is reductive. You know, we love, we, we sure. are obsessed with lists. You know, it's top three this, top six that, top ten the, this. The lists have only gotten better, so. Yeah, totally. And I, and I bet the AFI has re-released that, but I, I'm sure, you know, 50 or 60 of those titles have sort of stood the test of time and been on there. But, you know, it's probably gotten a little bit more diverse and, uh, you know, for, mm. for good reasons since then. So where does uh you mentioned a bunch of noir movies you were watching earlier like where where do crime movies come into this like or, or where does did you start reading uh, uh stuff outside of uh where, being a writer what kind of books were you reading what kind of lit were you in early writers were you into that's a great question i think that really getting into i i would say that Growing up, I was reading more, you know, just like R.L. Stein and Goosebumps and those sorts of, you know, monster mysteries and stuff. It wasn't probably until sure. I was in junior high or high school that I started to become more, you know, consciously focused on, you know, reading, you know, Sam Spade stories and kind of going back into some of the old Dashiell Hammett stuff and kind of studying that a little bit more. But you were studying that in like, like, did you, did you got that into middle school or were you high school or? Yeah, probably like eighth, ninth grade. Yeah, wow. I think that that's really where. And then I I had a great creative writing teacher, this guy, Glenn Hirschberg, who was a creative writing teacher at my high school. And he's actually, I think, published a book of short stories. And he got me into this. Uh, I remember he gave me this, this short story book by Joe R. Lansdale. It's called By Bizarre Hands, Freshman Year. And that's Jordan. a super dark book. And Joe R. Lansdale, that, yeah, he's got The Pale Door was just adapted. And I think he's had another one of his uh, short stories adapted since then. I forget what he's a big comic creator. If he created some big Vertigo title, I'm blanking. I wish yeah. the, our, my frequent Ted uh, co-host Ted Haycraft was here to correct me on this. But uh, were you an Elmore Leonard kid? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think that probably the movies got me into him initially. But mm -hmm. I have several of several of his short story collections, and I actually just picked up a new one recently that was sort of. I think released posthumously that was a lot of his early work, which isn't as great as some of his, you know, the stuff he's really known for, but, but yeah, I think all that. And then also 
you know, Tarantino was a big thing in terms of like when I first started getting obsessed with crime, it was like I saw Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, you know, before I was 12, you know, and I think that those are big things. And also I was watching The Sopranos when it with my parents while it was first airing when I was like 10 or 11. And so what we would do a lot is like recreate that. You know, it was Scorsese, Tarantino, you know, David Chase with The Sopranos. And and again, kind of having that basis in some of the older crime movies like Public Enemy or Little Caesar or Key Largo or whatever. I just was like, I am so in with all this shit. I just want to be steeped in all of these things. I got a random question because it's it's funny you say watching Sopranos with your your this would have been your mom. Yeah, it was mostly my mom. I mean, my mom would be pretty good about letting me watch interesting stuff that was a little bit uh, ahead of where I probably was at psychologically. You- I did. I remember you either told me or you posted on Instagram something about you've been going to the uh, um, um, the L.A. Philharmonic uh, season for like consistently for how long is it like you've been going since you were a kid or something like that? Yeah, my mom is a major uh, lover of classical music and has been, you know, part of that L.A. Philharmonic community for a long time. She like sponsored an event that they did one time and she, you know, just loves going to the classical shows at the Hollywood Bowl or downtown at the Disney um, Music Hall. So we actually yeah, we've actually uh, we went back in January to an event that was really just lovely. It was with Yo-Yo Ma and um and one other musician, it was just sort of a private event. But yeah, so I think that classical music has always been, you know, part of my life. And she, you know, I give credit to both of my parents for helping, you know, get me a little culture early on. It's, I have, I have a massive inferiority complex to you kids born in California, much less anyone who has any parents with culture. It's just like, come on, man, you're, you're like, born on third base in this regard what the oh, hell whatever you have more of an encyclopedic knowledge of, of 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 writing and film and so many and it's certainly graphic novels and comics than you know anybody i know who was born out here so i think that's, that's honestly, whatever that's fair, but, information but the comics knowledge gives you absolutely no credence no value whatsoever so um so was nyu like was that like was some that a big thing? Were you were you fighting for it? Was that I mean NYU film school was obviously a big deal at the time. Like it seems yeah. like it'd be it seems like it'd be a big coup to get in there at the time. Yeah, no, that was huge. I mean, I went to NYU uh, early decision, my application. I was totally set on being there. Part of that was just I wanted to get the hell out of, you know, California. Um, I just I, I had a conflicted relationship with LA. I thought LA was sort of phony. Had you had you been in L.A. the entire time? No. I mean, had you like never lived anywhere else? Had you made any trips anywhere else? Lived with family anywhere else or giant or long trip like vacation anywhere? We had gone because of my both because of both of my parents work. I'd spent quite a bit of time in New York as a kid. You know, I'd been there five or six times. Um, we had some family in Connecticut, you know, so I were there for holidays a few times and whatever. Um and and yeah, so I, I I don't know. I think that New York always stood out in my place. And then also, you know, some girl I knew in high school went to NYU as an actor. And I was just like, well, that place is great. And I just kind of became mm-hmm. fixated on it as like, a you know, as a sophomore and junior. And, uh, you know, the best part about it is that um, 
you know, it got me to New York and it broadened my horizons in a way where I feel like a lot of the people I know, even if they did grow up in LA and it's a big city, if they didn't leave at any point, you know, there, there is still a small town mentality that can exist mm. here. I, I heard recently David Mamet talking about his dad say that he was talking about New York, not in LA, but he said New York is the biggest small town there is. Exactly. I mean, I think it's like, it would apply to LA too. Yeah. Totally. It's the same thing. It's just like, if you're just used to one thing, you know, whether it's a city with, you know, 35,000 people or 14 million people, it's still the thing you're used to. And LA is like, I don't feel, you know, like I know certain parts of LA, like they're my hometown at all. You know, it's just like hmm. LA is so diverse and spread out that I, I think it's more like eight, eight or 12 cities just that have been joined together so you can definitely get that small town mentality here too sure i think you know i'm trying to figure out where a lot of the because when i was going to college and why you had that reputation as if you want to be a filmmaker you were going to go there and i don't know if it was the scorsese spike lee connection but i always i always think of like there's Paul Thomas Anderson famously went there just for like a few days and left. And it's funny because I know he's anecdotally told two different stories about why he dropped out. One was that he got to a class and it's, uh, an instructor said, if you want to make Terminator 2, this is not the class for you. And he was like, I want to make Terminator 2. And he left. The other, <laughs> the the other story. That's the one I know. Is that the way? The, the David Mam- you know the David Mamet one? Do you want to tell that one? Yeah, that's the one I've always heard, which I think is hilarious, which it was, yeah, it was for an early screenwriting class. And it was like a scene writing exercise about, you know, writing, you know, here's two characters, they both have this goal, let's do this scene exercise. And he plagiarized a scene from one of David Mamet's early plays that might have been sexual no, in Chicago. Hoffa. It was Hoffa. It was Hoffa. Okay, it was from Hoffa. And he got an F. Uh, on what, it was a scene where... Uh, um, was it Danny DeVito's in Hoffa where he has to stay awake and um, he puts a cigarette in between his fingers and he lets it burn to his fingers to wake him up. And I remember hearing that story and being like, because also I remember that detail from things like um, Aliens. James Cameron used it. James Cameron used it in Aliens and in the special edition of Terminator 2. And I remember thinking like, you know what? I'm actually kind of with the instructor here because like, that's just a gimmick. That's not a character detail. Totally. Totally. Yeah, you never know. And I, I mean, I think some of those stories just get larger than life over the years. Who knows? But I do think, you know, the one lesson from that, that I think the reason that people remember those stories is it's about people, you know, staying true to who they are and not letting some sort of system change what their priorities are about the types of stories they want to tell or how they want to create content, you know? And Mm -hmm. I feel like that's why people like us love those stories. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's funny because I also was thinking the forms of like those things get so anecdotal and, pro- and like you know print the legend like and now you're on a podcast telling these stories so how's it feel <laughs> so so what was nyu like when you were there um nyu was great i mean i think nyu was one of those things where it was sort of like you could um you know really apply yourself as much or as little as you wanted i there was there was definitely like fellow classmates that i was surprised that they were at NYU or that they actually decided to go to film school because I didn't quite understand. There was just a level of obsession that I had, you know, that certainly other fellow classmates had or had more than me too. But, you know, it was, it was interesting. And, 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 and also I think it was, um, 
the biggest thing for me that was my biggest takeaway is I had two great teacher relationships. Um, and, and there's still teachers that I talk to to this day. One was Ken Danziker, who's, who's written a number of books on screenwriting, a really sharp guy. And the other woman, uh, the other one was a professor named Joan Horvath, who taught who taught basically improvisational directing techniques. And, and I don't think there was any one class or, you know, one thing that I took from NYU, but there, those two individuals taught me a lot. And then I think, um, you know, NYU, I was able to go to abroad, go abroad because NYU has great study abroad program. So it was more just about being within the, that structure of that large private university. There was cool opportunities that came along with it. Where'd so you go I, abroad? I studied abroad for six months in Dublin and six months in Prague. And so I basically was gone for all of my junior year of college, which was a lot of fun. Um, That's a very literary, very architecturally based study abroad, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, 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 um, the, uh, the Dublin program was a spe- specifically a screenwriting program. Um, and, and it, it involved a lot of adjunct professors from Trinity college. And then, um, the Prague one was more of just a general writing program, and I just wanted to be in Prague. But they also, <laughs> they do have a tremendous background of, you know, cinematography and love of cinema there. And there are some of those very notorious Eastern European studios, um, you know, so it, it is definitely a, a culture steeped in cinema in a lot of ways, too. So, it was, so it was, did you just do your undergrad there? Yeah, I just did my undergrad there and uh, definitely never had the appetite to do anything beyond undergrad. If anything, I was ready to leave, I think, undergrad by the time that came around. But um, yeah, and then yeah, and then I ended up moving um, back to L.A. and I got an internship working at Warner Brothers and, um, you know, just to, to, you know, go from there is like. Worked for a guy named Gianni Nunery, who was a producer on that movie, The 300. And that's where he basically made most of a lot of his money. Um, and he he was an interesting guy that, uh, you know, was a pretty hard guy to work for. So when um, Did I got you get, a, like some insight to studio system that way or because, I mean, 300 would have been I don't know what he was a part what company he was a part of, but that would have been one of those like giant legendary things where like a giant company paid to like sell it to Warner brothers or something like that. I don't know how much it, or how much was it in the studio system really? Well, 300 was so big that it cost about $38 million and it made about 450, I think. And it just like was the perfect studio model movie. And it kind of helped make this guy's career. But he also came from a background working um, for some, he was an Italian filmmaker based that, you know, he was originally from Rome. And so he had a lot of, in, it, it was interesting working with him, not only understanding the studio development world, but also understanding his history in the larger kind of foreign sales world and how this isn't just the North American market. Um, so that was really educational. I became a, I worked my way up to becoming a story editor. So that's, I basically worked for the the head of development that they usually call like a creative director at the production this, company. This Okay. This yeah, would be a production company. Same, yeah, this was at the same place. It was called Hollywood Gang Productions. And, um, you know, it was it was incredibly educational. I got to work directly with writers. I got to give feedback on scripts. We would go through sometimes 15, 16, 18 drafts of one script. And I would be the guy, you know, not only providing feedback, but also gathering all the feedback from the executives and the producer and my boss to create 
you know, a document that would generate the next draft for whichever writers we were working with. So it was cool. And also I was able, the way I always put it is I got to sit in the room with the producers and the executives after the writers gave their pitch and left the room, which that moment is super important, right? It's like <laughs> the, writer, the writer or the writing duo is in the room to give their pitch and then they leave the room and then you get the real reaction, you know? Okay, so the the question begs, what kind of reactions were they giving? Not, okay, I don't know if you can give away, okay, how, how much can you say what they're, like, was it like, a, you know, just incredulousness? Was it just like dismissiveness? Was it serious, ponderous, oh, they really nailed that third act, you know? <laughs> I'd say all the above except for the serious, ponderous one. <laughs> it's probably the less thoughtful, you know, I mean, I think that that's what's frustrating about being a storyteller sometimes is the people that are in the positions of power a lot of the time don't necessarily have your love for craftsmanship or, or something that, that, you know, that they can relate to it really. So they're kind of often shooting from the hip, you know, here's well, a guy who is an attorney and now he's become apparently mm -hmm. a creative development expert for reasons I am not quite sure on, you know, and it's that, because he was on one movie that made money seven years ago. That's my question is like, do they like movies? Like, or is it just like, do they get into the movies because money's involved and they can tell people what to do or, what like and they kind of out of cursory like i watch tv so i like filmed entertainment stories like right. mentality right i mean i think i think film uh, you know if you're on the business side of the film industry i think you've got a strong you know appetite for you know high risk endeavors you've got a bit of a gambler's spirit and also you like stuff that's flashy i think a lot of you know like gianni my former boss he dated nev campbell he just had a <laughs> He just had a child. He's in his 60s and he just had a child three or four years ago with an Italian supermodel who's is 25 years younger than him. So do you, do you still talk to him? Has he seen uh, either your two movies? No, I actually did run into him at like an event one time and we had a nice chat because it's like one of those things where there's tensions with people when you don't work for them or you're not under them anymore. You can have, uh, as you and I can probably speak to that in different ways, but it's like, you know, then you can, uh, you could actually have more of a good rapport because there's not nothing that's charging the relationship anymore. So how long were you there? I was there for about two years. What what was the um, inciting, to use the writer's lingo, what was the inciting incident that led you to leave? Uh, the inciting, well, there was, it was sort of a little bit of a time coming because we had, I started as an intern, then became an assistant and then promoted out to becoming a story editor. And so I was in a position where I had to fill my assistant role, right, in order for me to promote into this next role. And I had the damnedest time filling that position role because that the uh, the assistant role because three people quit in less than like six months. <laughs> so the wait the job you had caused people to quit really fast. Yes, yes, and some of them quit in a very very loud way where they would literally be leaving the office screaming, "Fuck this, fuck you!" You you know, like it was as bad as contentious as it could get. So I had been kind of in the back of my head. I'm like, wow, I have a pretty high you know, uh, threshold for abuse. So I don't really <laughs> mind. I don't really mind if people are harsh with me, but 
you know, these other people were really struggling with it. So I could see the writing on the wall. And then um, a friend of mine, uh, uh, Nicholas Gonda, was working for Terrence Malick on a movie To the Wonder out in Oklahoma. And I had heard that they had just uh, started pre-production. So I, I pinged him. I, I reached out to him. I texted him because I was friends with his younger brother. And I said, I will literally fly myself out there and work for free as long as you, you know, put me up and, and you know, give me food. And he was like, perfect. You know, this- and so I moved. Okay. I mean, you very roundaboutly got to like our origin story. But uh, exactly. so wait, where, where did you and Nick meet? Nicholas Gonda. So where did you hit, where did you him and meet? Yeah, Nick, I know because I grew up, Go. I went to high school with one of his younger brothers, Michael. And so I knew Nick from like hanging out at his parents' house back when I was, you know, 16 or 17. Um, and then we weren't really, you know, particularly close before we worked together. And I think that that um, was really where our, our main relationship began. So you go out to Bartlesville. What, like, how was the uh, first few days there? What was that like? Bartlesville was great. I mean, the Bartlesville was the best because it was like, we took over that whole town, you know, in a great way where it was like, and it was me with, you know, Courtney Stevens and Deke Hadnot both picked me up at the airport, you know, and, oh. and, uh, and I remember the first time I met Terry, I walked into the uh, Johnstone apartment building where we were all staying and oh, I'm, man. I'm walking towards the elevator as the elevator doors open. He comes off and Courtney tries to introduce me to him because I'm going to be his PA, basically. And he was just like, oh, hi, lovely to meet you. And just immediately walked past, but made the biggest <laughs> moment of eye contact. And I was like, OK, well, here we go. Um, you yeah. know, I so I was only in Bartlesville for two weeks. I hung out. I wasn't I wasn't going to edit on to the wonder at all. And recently I had this friend. Um, I had two actor friends who are shooting a movie in Connecticut right now. And uh, one of them staying at a hotel and um, they were described. I heard through the my friends, one the friend's husband describing the hotel and all I could think of is my only set experience is Bartlesville and that hotel and how magical and like weird and like, I don't know, like summer campy it was. And I always just like to think that all film productions are like that. Even like the expensive ones where like every night, everyone, what, what was it? It was like, was it a retirement home turning into a hotel or a hotel turning into a retirement home? Uh, and, I think and they, retirement home turning into a hotel. And, and so they, they basically they, gonna, they were going to renovate. They were going to rip out the whole interior of the building the second we finished production. They were just going to gut the whole thing and rebuild every unit in there. So it was, yeah, man, you're right. It was summer camp is the way to describe it. I remember, you know, people would be drinking and smoking on the roof every night. And, the you know, roof. Like, oh, and remember that one bar, the, um, the one that was in the, uh, there was that building, the tower that had been designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. I remember and the tower, yeah, because it, it's in the movie. Was, yeah, and there's a scene there, yeah. Yeah, and everything was three-quarter scale in that building. So it wasn't full. Like, the elevator was only, like, five and a half, six feet tall. See, so, you're, get, you're getting to this point where I know the images based on, like, what I know, you shot. Like, yeah. yeah, I don't I don't know these these actual tactile, physical descriptions of it. But you're right. I get, I'm just agreeing with you that it was there was a magical experience being in a small town, all of us living under the same roof, essentially, you know, where I don't know that, you know, I've ever 
ever going to have more fun on a production than that. That was like, I would love to be able to recreate something like that as a so director. You, but, but to answer my question, movies aren't that fun typically, right? No. <laughs> okay. I mean, I would literally came in for two weeks or no, no, it wasn't a week. It was like a weekend. And it was just like, wow, this, everyone seems so damn happy here. And that's, that's not how movies are made. What the hell is going on? Yeah, it was stressful and, you know, always very high expectations from that from that group of creators. But it was so fun. I think everybody had a blast. So you went to Austin after shoot and went straight on to post. Yep, exactly. And that, yeah, I basically had, I, I went and told Nick Gonda and Sarah Green, you know, well, they actually approached me and said, look, you know, we're looking for a full-time assistant for, you know, sort of a right-hand person for, for Terry. Do you have any, you know, interest in that role? Because he really likes you as his PA. And so, so yeah, I told him that I did. And then, and then I had to have a private, you know, conversation with him about it. And I think he really liked that I had worked at a studio because he knew that there was certain, you know, uh, you had to have a certain thick skin in order to hold one of those jobs for a long time. So I think he mm -hmm. knew that he said something like, I know that I won't scare you away too quickly or something, <laughs> you know, because you've already, you know, kind of been through it. Whereas it is hard to be an assistant. You have to, you know, let go of a lot of your own needs and say, I'm living this person's life. And what do they need? I remember even Spencer Bailey, who I think you might remember, he was Ben Affleck's assistant on to the wonder. I, I mean, we, we barely had any overlap, but yeah. Yeah. But yeah, and he's such a sweet guy. But I remember Spencer one time, he invited me to his room inside the Johnstone Apartments and I walked in and it looked like a bomb had gone off. And he was Ben's assistant. And there was just papers everywhere and underwear hanging off the fan and stuff covering, you know, clothes covering the TV. It was just like he'd thrown everything he owns around the room. And he looked at me and he said, don't comment. His life's perfect. <laughs> and I was like, that, that is, that is a, that's an assistant. That is a true assistant. Somebody that's like, don't worry about what my life looks like. His life is exactly how it's supposed to be. And that's what I'm here to do. You know. So you were on through all the post-production to The Wonder. You were on through the shoots for, um, were you all the way through Nine of Cups and Song to Song shoots? Yep. We did Voyage of Time and then and then uh, Nine of Cups and then Song to Song. Do you want to take the giant swing to encapsulate all the things you learned under your tutelage of Terrence Malick? Sure. I think the big, I mean, that's always, and it's fun to talk to you about it too, but it's, that's, it, it really is fun to think back on now that there's like enough separation from it. I think that the big lesson, like, honestly, we we're talking about with that PTA story and what, what is the underlying lesson of that NYU story of his, is it's sort of like, do your own thing and don't let people compromise your vision or what you are thinking about doing. Even though there was mm -hmm. times when I fully disagreed with Terry and I felt like I didn't understand why he was making the decision he was making. He mm -hmm. was so determined. He was so singular in his vision and in what he was trying to do that he mm -hmm. didn't really care very much if somebody else wasn't on board with that. Exactly. It mm -hmm. was, you know, and I think that having that self-confidence or that, that sense of assuredness that I'm here to create the thing the way I imagine it and not let circumstance get in your way or let, you know, um, you know, decisions by committee don't work out very well, typically. So unless mm. you're in a corporate setting. So I think in a way that was fun. And also to see a man, you know, who's in his seventies still doing it and still having the joy of it. Because like, 
so much of that was like, here we are making a 15 to $20 million movie with Christian Bale, Natalie Portman, Kate Blanchett, and whomever else on set. And we're operating like an indie movie. We're almost operating like a, a, a film school movie. Where yeah. We're kind of winging it and running from here to there. You know, the location manager guy wants to kill himself because we're just <laughs> illegally shooting in whatever place we want to. And, and I think that that remembering that it's supposed to be fun, remembering mm. that it's supposed to be a bit of a game and it's something that should get you excited, even though the films don't necessarily you know, you wouldn't necessarily call them fun as the single most defining characteristic. The making of them was joyful in a lot of yeah, ways. Yeah, it, it does seem like everyone involved, like, I don't know, on the shoots, always talked in terms of like, because even in post and in the worst at times of it, you still had that sense, like this shared goal of like, we're trying to do something that goes back to why we all got into this in the first place. Like, and there's a lot of us, like, I always come back to, like, we walked in every day with the idea, you might come up with something that's going to change the art form today. And even, if, you know, realistically, no, you're not going to do that. You want it, there was that atmosphere that was set up that allowed for that to potential to happen. And yeah. there, there wouldn't be the openness that that could happen. And I totally agree. And that's a big, that's a leap of faith to believe that something magical like that can happen, you know? The whole radiant, you know, the whole radiant zigzag becoming thing of his, you know, it's like he would get so, you know, he would get sometimes ahead of himself in what he was trying to do. But he did indoctrinate us in this philosophy that you can do something purely original and you can change the form. You can do these highly aspirational things. And while, yeah, not all of them pan out, I just the spirit of that is great. The, the I, attitude is great. I want you to own the Radiant Zigzag Becoming. Here's the thing. I remember the, the thing is like, that's such a ubiquitous phrase in the Terrence Malick world. But I remember one time being at um, a film party telling someone I worked for him and someone repeating that phrase back to me. I was just like, where the hell did you hear this? Because I didn't know it was out in the world. So <laughs> I didn't know it was either. Do you, okay, I want you to own this, unless you want me to own this, because I am, I very, I am very cowardly forcing this onto you. This was, what was, okay, so basically, I can't, do you remember the book? It, it was, was the introduction to, yeah, it was the um, intro. to, is one of the second novels after, like, Tristan Shandy. It mm -hmm. was like, um, it was a single person's name, but it was an introduction that talked about how the film structure, or the, the book structure, book structure the, yeah. the narrative structure of the book was a mind of its own. And the way it presented itself, the phrase they used was the radiant zigzag becoming. Yep. And that's what it was. And I can't remember. It was a female, uh, the editor of the book. I, she was a professor of some kind. I'm trying to remember the author's name. But yeah, I think that that idea, you know, what was so funny about it is that Jack McNeese, you know, uh, you know, Terry's long term friend and you know, person he's known since he went to Harvard. It's, Pam it's the novel Pamela by Samuel Richardson. Samuel Richardson. Right. Exactly. So, yes, this is from the foreword to the novel Pamela yeah. by Samuel Richardson. We and don't know. Our, we don't know the intro writer. We we never quoted her specifically. No, no. We, we gave the credit to him, probably. Uh, but 
the the whole point is I don't know that he necessarily ever read the book. And I think the thing that was funny about it is he that probably he, read the book. He probably or some part maybe, of the book. maybe since. But I think what happened is is he saw that phrase and it just fit an idea that he had in his mind. And he felt that it articulated that just in the just right way. And I think what it was, you know, that was frustrating about it is sometimes we wanted to do these landed scenes in editorial. We wanted to have these moments that felt, you know, more controlled in some way. And he was always just pushing, 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 pushing. Don't ever let it settle. It it Mm. doesn't know what it is yet. It's always kind of unspooling and teaching us what it is as it's going. That was always the way I interpreted it, kind of. Yeah, I I think one of the my lessons from being there was just like a lot of times our aspirations are contradictory, especially when you go back to what like because one day you'll say I want um, I want my actors to be person like and not move, and then another day you'll come in and be like I want this this scene to sing like opera. You know, you right. just, you'll, it's, it's, and it ends up the, going to end up being a balance of your aspirations. Like, and hopefully when it works out well, they, they merge together organically. So, but exactly. And then, and then people are able to bring whatever meaning that they intuit, at, you know, from it, to, you know, to what, the, to what you've presented them. Cause I think that there's always, that's the final piece of it. So, how long after you left? you okay one of my other favorite memories of you is um and your work ethic and your writing work ethic was we would i distinctly remember we were on the sound mix stages on to the wonder and um i went inside and all the seats were taken and there was this cubby hole where you could like lay down in front of the console itself and no one in the room could see what you were doing so i would lay down and you know, maybe I'd be taking notes. Maybe I'd be kind of, my mind would be wandering, whatever. And I just remember you working on, you You were doing your job so diligently and you had all these balls bouncing. And then I'd look over and you were writing a script <laughs> while doing all this. That was the one where we were at the ranch, right? When we were out at Robert Rodriguez's place. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that place was awesome. And I loved that because yeah, it was it was um Craig Berkey and um uh, No, Craig wasn't out there. Wasn't it when we were doing the mix? I thought Remember Joel it? was It was just Joel, you're right. For that it was just Joel. Yeah, who I ran into like a couple months ago. But anyway, um Joel Daugherty. Sorry. Joel Daugherty. We should, yeah, we should exactly. say the name. Great, yes. great sound mixer. Love that. Great guy. sound designer. Um Genius. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, basically, I love I always love multitasking. And I think that that's I also knew that Terry was in happy, a happy enough place when he was on the mix stage that I kind of had a free moment because I knew that he had, you know, he had Joel and he had the team and he had you and he had Keith and he had AJ and nobody was really going to call on me necessarily. And I was paying enough attention, but those were long days. I mean, you're spending eight, nine, 10, 12 hours sometimes. And it was like, this is good time to utilize for something else. I, 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 I need to reiterate, you had all the balls juggled. Like you would have, like you had everything under control. Like there was very little times like he was not unhappy with your performance. So like this, you were doing this and doing your job at the same time. I just remember thinking like there is a certain level of 40 chess multitasking that i can never <laughs> accomplish 
I think that's what I mean about the, you know, just learning to be an assistant. I think that my first job out of college did help me be ready for that job, you know, where I was like, you know, bring it on. There was a little bit of like a military like mentality, honestly, where I was like, uh, I took pride in the job I was doing and I wasn't going to drop a ball and I didn't get like emotional about it. I was just very, I was driven to make sure that I never disappointed him as well as, mm. as you know, that feeling. Yeah, no, I think you did an amazing job at it too. Yeah, I mean, you were, yeah, like, so how long after you left, were you working on, when you were writing these, was Inheritance the script you were writing at this time? Or, because I mean, the thing is, you've, you have, you have a lot of scripts in your library, or you have a lot of stuff you've been working on over the time. Was Inheritance the script you're working on? No, Inheritance, no. It was it was a, a script that I think we ended up calling No Man's Land that I was working on with my writing partner, Dash Hawkins. Um, and he, at the time, was, was working as an assistant to a showrunner for a BEC show called Read Between the Lines, I think. Um, but anyway, so he and I, it was good because we were both doing assistant jobs. And when you're working with a writing partner, I think, and you have a whole other career, a whole other job you're doing, it's nice to have somebody to sort of be bouncing things off with. So that mm. was an action movie that we actually wrote that was called No Man's Land. And that was the script that ended up, we actually got management from that script. And uh, that was part of the reason I ultimately ended up leaving Texas was was we wrote an action movie that got us a manager. And so Dash and I both quit our jobs and decided to try to write full time. Is it a thing where two assistants like when one's stuck on a block of working, the other block is free for the other assistant? Kind of. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like you fill in as you can. It was like the, the always, hurry up and wait aspect to everything. Like someone's on a wait at some point. Yeah, exactly. And it was funny. It was one time when we were shooting Night of Cups, um, where we were shooting in Las Vegas. We shot in Las Vegas for four days, which was sort of a nightmare because to me, maximum Las Vegas time is two nights. And then you have to get <laughs> out of Las Vegas. Okay. It was just way too much. But anyway, Dash was there for um, what they called the BE, the BET Awards, where you know, he was probably the only white person in attendance to the whole thing. And and he was there for his boss, because uh, I think a show that they uh, that, that he was an assistant on had been nominated. So he and I ended up having cocktails there in Vegas after I wrapped and after he got out of this event um, at like four in the morning, because, you know, we were just working these insane hours. And in Las Vegas, you can't even tell when the sun is up and when it's not. And it was just very funny that even when we were still in that assistant grinding mode, um, we were still able to find time to, to, to write and to get stuff out there. I, I love this idea that you're just like walking out. My, some of my significant Vegas memories involve like 4 a.m. and walking outside to like the like what the three foot high uh, Long Island iced tea tubes. And like you'd walk outside and there'd be the like the sidewalks papered with stripper uh, uh, oh, yeah, flyers. Yeah. And you guys are just like, ah, but how honestly, c c talk me through again, break this scene again, break me through this scene again. Who exactly. wants what? Exactly. I mean, I think that when you are, and it was sort of like what you were talking about, you know, with the, with the AFF thing and what that community's like, when you're really passionate about this stuff, you could talk about it for forever. You know, and it's like, yeah, even the even the distractions of, of Las Vegas can't get away from 
you know, can't pull you away from that. Like we're working on something else now and, and we're still very, very in sync about stuff. And it's cool that, you know, that, that energy and that spark and that excitement hasn't gone away, even though we have had quite a few, you know, professional disappointments, just like any, just like any person who's worked in a creative industry and certainly just like any screenwriter. Well, especially an industry that's so based on the market and it's just like, it's, you know, ends up being tenacity is the thing, the only thing that lets people survive. So, totally. so wait, how long did it take for inheritance to come up? So inheritance was sort of, I think I left Texas at the beginning of 2014, I think. Or was it 2015? 2014 sounds right because I... Yeah, it was like February, March of 2014. So it's been almost six six and a half years now. So I think what happened is that Dash... uh, I moved back to LA. Dash and I got management with a guy named Adam Kohlbrenner at Madhouse Entertainment. And he he took us out. We did the like water bottle tour thing where people read our spec scripts and thought they were awesome and then didn't buy them. How, wait, then, wait! How, I didn't know you did a water bottle tour. I'm obsessed with this water bottle tour. Like, how extensive uh, was it? Like, it's how pretty extensive? Like, I mean, talking like dozens and dozens of meetings. I mean, it was like, but it was also, you know, beg the question: What are these people doing all day? Because I'm not really here to talk about it. I guess the idea is, hey, we're building out our network. We've met now. We had a cup of coffee together. Now you're part of my network. And next time I come across an action movie that needs a rewrite. Maybe I'll tap you to do it or something. But it was sort of a little, it was incredibly exciting at the beginning. You know, we got signed by Madhouse Entertainment and then Verve, agent, talent agency. And, you know, we went out with a spec script, this action script, and then uh, we did a pilot. We met with the people that were the executive producers of Breaking Bad. We met with the two guys that were head of development for Cinemax. We were having, like, awesome meetings. Um, But, you know, it's really hard to get something to production. You were know, they really were is. they these these meetings where they'd say like um yeah we're totally in sync and you'd feel this synergy and then you'd get ghosted after that stuff like that yeah kind of i mean you had to learn how to have a thick skin with those things where you're just like you know um i mean but you know what's good about that is there's people that i probably met on a water bottle water bottle tour you know, three, four years ago that, um, you know, if Blinders gets picked up and gets released next year, I can still hit them up and say, hey, look, I just got my movie released. What are you guys doing? You know, it's like I do think that there is some relevant networking that's available to writers through going through that process. But it's inevitably pretty tricky when, you know, our all of our aspirations, we want that big thing to happen. We want to get that movie into production. And so often, you know, like you just said, it's it's just about patience and tenacity because mm-hmm. it's like even some of the writers that were writers that, you know, back at Warner Brothers, they were actually paid writers and they were being paid on a studio contract to write this movie that was going to be a $75 million movie. How many of those movies got made? What, 5% of them? You know, so even like when you're here, it's basically, it's like the whole thing about climbing up the mountain. Every time you get to the peak, you're now in a point of view where you get to see the next peak. From the base of the hill, you just see this one peak. And then every time you get to that new plateau, there's always another peak that you got to hit. You know, guys mm-hmm. that I envied their careers, I'm like, oh my God, this guy's in the guild. And he's and he gets hired all the time to do this rewrite work. And he like fully, you know, his whole career is just writing. He doesn't have to have any side gigs. 
the man is 45 years old and he's never seen a movie go into production or maybe one movie went into production and then it was panned because they rewrote the ending after he was, you know, and it's like, even for the people that have made it, there's frustrations about what making it feels like. The craziest is when you hear these writers talk and they just casually describe scenes they've written and you could see like those scenes could, if not classic scenes, you would see like there's so much talent. Like they would, I was listening to, um, I, I'm a big fanatic for the uh, movies that made me podcast and yeah. co-host Josh Olson. Actually, he was describing a movie that did get made, but he was describing one of the first movies he made where these spies met in a porn shop and he had this throwaway line where it was just like, yeah, no one will, no one's eyes will meet us here. And he was these two spies meeting in a porn shop in Europe. And I was like, that's such a great fucking line. Yeah. And no, no one's going to quote that line, but that's yeah. like, that's a great writer writing a great line. And it's just, yeah. I, I constantly lament the amount of writing talent in LA that works on shit that will never be seen. And stuff that goes to the dustbin of history, just, yeah. just, just straight into the ether. This brilliance, but um, yeah, and I think that that's a, that is the frustration, and I think why there is sometimes a little bit of animosity to some people in those development positions because sometimes it does feel a little bit like a fool's errand. You know, there's a lot of like production companies will go out and they'll be like they'll talk to all their agency contacts and they'll say, "Well, we want ten writers to submit a pitch to us that's about." Uh, a fucking submarine with a monster on it. I don't care, whatever it is, you know? And then they just like, they're not paying you for that. They're just saying, hey, submit us a pitch. You know, Dash and I have done that countless times. And let me ask, throwing let me an ask, alley-oop out there. Let me ask you this. How much of development jobs are bullshit jobs for corporations taking over movie making? And just just layers of administration to just make people commit to saying no, to not committing to large expenditure. And the fundamental idea that in show business is I like the business part still like especially I wanted to say it doesn't make sense, but it's so fucking short-sighted like the movies that the stories that make us want to live are not things that in like everyone in humanity gets engaged with in a fucking weekend you know right, like right. it's not, it's not like a blockbuster something that's actually going to you know maybe be salient to, to a certain audience i think that that happens too a lot where people broadcast as opposed to narrowcast something and then they they broaden it out so much that it doesn't really appeal to anybody anymore because <laughs> they were trying to appeal. I think Disney gets into those waters a little bit with some of their development slate, where it's sort of like, well, who is this for? Like, who is this meant for? Yeah. Um, but I agree with what you were just saying about the development thing. I think there is a lot of bureaucracy there. I think that a lot of people that come from, you know, I work in a more typical business setting. I think that it, there's a lot of people that come from other industries and look at this industry, and it does feel a little, uh, you know, overstuffed. And it's like, do we really need all these people and all their assistants and all these things to make basically a decision about what three movies we're going to make this year. You know, yeah, especially like if they're making less movies. And that's the thing, like the collective thing I found from people in the pandemic, especially when talking to people in LA is like, we really need to rethink everything. We need to rethink the formula. Cause when you have a year where no one's seen anything in a theater, what, like you just, 
just have to like stop and take stock. And there's, yeah, it's just so much of this, the, the film business just doesn't make fucking sense sometimes. It doesn't. I mean, I think that's where I look for the silver lining because I think there's opportunity and chaos. And I think that there is a lot of overturn going on in the industry with, you know, with the streaming wars, but also, you know, where, uh, you know, the approaches to finance and approaches to, you know, getting funding for content are are multiplying there because there's more and more need for it. So I do think there's going to be some silver lining, some good that comes out of this, um, this transition period we're in, because you're right, there is just a lot that's dysfunctional about the historical film model, too. You know, and that's not just the me too's of it all, but just the acceptance of bad behavior in this industry is mm. bullshit. There's so much there's so much fat on the bone. There's all these people that have, you know, some 4,000 square foot office and some $4,000 bottle of scotch that they drink with their directors. And it's like, what are you really doing here? <laughs> like, what is the job? Why are you, you know, what, what are you really contributing? And, and maybe we need to look at those roles in a different way. I know lately I've been rethinking the whole director model in terms of like, as a leadership strategy, the director model does not make sense. It's this sycophantic thing that it, like imbues power all the way up to the head and more often than not does not be, like benefit majority the production itself. Like I don't know. We were talking earlier about Terry and you mentioned the the collaboration system not working, but for me the last few years, I found that like collaboration with shared goals is actually the best thing to go for. It's always collaboration that that is trying not to save its ass, not coming from a mindset of scarcity, and always trying to go for the lowest common denominator. Amen. That's that's the stuff you wanted to avoid. But like you look at shit like Marvel or Pixar, and they got flaws. Don't get me wrong. I'm not I'm not gonna say they don't, but you get a group of talented people, a group of talented storytellers together. And and to say nothing about, which this is a different podcast altogether, like the director formula for making powerful men more powerful, like goes to your point about the $4,000 square foot office or the $4,000 bottle scotch. It's just like, it's, it's this self like self regurgitating thing that's like like the model makes sense because it's what we've done before but it's the only thing we've tried you know and it's ego driven right i think that, that that's a lot of like power grabbing kind of mentality there where i don't i think that it's like what is it really in aid of you know a lot of times the best creation comes out of limitation right and so i think that that's where the model is sort of screwed up too. I don't think whether it's the director model or more of a producer model, I think that you're, what, what you said that I said amen to is like actual collaboration around a shared goal is the greatest satisfaction. I don't want to be some dictatorial auteur that yells at people and tells them what to do. There's no joy in that. There's joy in working with somebody saying, I have this in my head. You're really talented at this. You're really talented at that. And then everybody comes up with something that's better than any one of us individually could have come up with. Like that's mm -hmm. the whole fucking point of this. And I think that there's flaws. What was interesting is with the studio model, uh, model that I observed, at least, I think the flaw was business decisions were trying to drive creative decisions. And yeah. so that was too one, one sided. And then what I saw on the Malik side is 
there were no business decisions at all factored into what was being created. And so it was like, I live in the gray area between. I would like to think that there's a way to maintain some sort of creative integrity while also doing something that does factor in the fact that we have to get this movie released to an audience that wants it at some level. So was you had the action spec go out. Was this like, was there after the Waddle tour, was this the thing where it's like you got to the peak and then you came down from back into a valley and you're just like, oh, this is amazing. I'm not making anything. Is that where you're like, I need to come up with as cheap a movie as I can? And yeah, like- that's that's where that that's where inheritance came because it was basically we got hired to write a adaptation and we got employed as writers. And so we Dash and I both got into the guild because of that. And so it that was tremendously exciting. I was like, oh wow, we're really, you know, we're making tens of thousands of dollars as writers. And so it was that was cool. But then the movie fell apart after about two years. And we had done uh, research trips. We had, you know, put heart and soul into this thing. You know, I mean, we had done seven drafts. And um, so can you talk about this movie or because I I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I can. I don't I don't even know. But I will say what the you know, whatever to the hell with it. It was the movie was to, you know, killing yourself to uh, killing yourself to death. Um, sorry, Chuck Cla- by Chuck, the Chuck Klosterman. Yeah, it was a Chuck Klosterman book. I remember, like, it was like a Chuck Klosterman book. It was so tremendously exciting, and I'm such a massive fan. And it was probably an 18 month to two year journey, and it was just sort of heartbreaking when it didn't happen. You know, we really felt like it was going to happen. We were talking, you know, really specific about you know what you know cast ideas when you know when they were trying to get into production, all these things. And then it just sort of dissolved. And so I think after that, it was very much like, I need to get back into making a movie to remind myself why this is a joyful thing. And it's not about two years of effort and then having, you know, it all just go away. Well, you were really methodical in the writing of it where, I mean, like, you know, they always say when you write low budget stuff, right, is limited locations, right, in the locations you have access to. And you were very... Um, you use those locations. You're like these. I have access to. You're okay. We are talking right now, and you're at the house that the majority of inheritance <laughs> was filmed in. I sure am. Yeah, I did. I based this around a house. Um, you know that 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 my mom lived in that I knew it could have access to that she had just purchased at the time and um. So basically, yeah, that was the whole thing. I said, look, here's this amazing location. I know some great talented people. I know talented editors, DPs, actors. And we just put together a very low budget movie in a way that I was proud of. But, you know, um, I think in retrospect that, you know, I was almost too eager to rush into production. You know, I think I, I think in retrospect that part of me wishes I had taken longer to develop the, the movie. Um, you know, but at the same time, there is a certain like, you know, a leap of faith attitude you got to have sometimes where you're like, I need to do this now. If I don't do well, this right now, it's going to be taken away from me and I won't be able to do it ever. And so there's, you also, just, there's yeah. also the feeling that when you make a movie that like the endeavor itself, you'll just and fix as it goes along. Like if there's a flaw in it, that's the thing that like all these EPKs talking about the making of movies when there's like, we have to have a perfect script. One, there's no such thing as a perfect script. Two, the making is what makes a script work. And like, it's, 
It's always if you make it three times. I do believe that mentality. If you make it three times, you make it when you write it, you make it when you shoot it, and then you make it the final time when you edit it. And and you, there will always, there should always be discovery in every one of those things. If there isn't, you probably are fucking something up. You and know? that's that's got to be the thing you learned from Terry more than anything else, because like discovery is like his mo, and like that sure. was the thing I noticed whenever. So all right. We're going into the section where our our powers combined, our connections come together. Dun dun dun! I edited inheritance, or <laughs> or actually, okay, let's distinguish this. Um, two of the last three movies I edited, I taught or or made a point to show the director Avid because I knew they would want to be very hands on with it, and you were one of them. So Inheritance is really a co-edited movie. You edited Inheritance too. Yeah, we were very much side by side through a lot of that. And I love that. And yeah. I, I I prefer to work that way. I mean, you definitely were the editor of the movie, but it was so nice to be able to, you know, to go back and forth and have, you know, to collaborate. Yeah. Well, there was also, I had worked a lot of the indies I'd worked on. I was not, you know, I was very unhappy with the schedule just because I kept pointing out like, look, you're spending all this money on a movie and then shortchanging your post based on the model of nine to 12 weeks of editing. And I know recently I was talking with a director about this and the phrase we came to was like, you're just setting us up for a B minus. Like it's just, and, and but then I would point out, like, oh, I came from the Terrence Smalik world, and they'd be like, oh, we're not going to have five years to make a movie. And I'd just be like, I'm not asking for that. I just want two or three more weeks. I just want to sit with this so that, like, maybe in the middle of night somewhere, we figure out the elliptical cut that's going to save this movie, you know, or that's make leaving it- room for discovery. You know, that's leaving room for discovery to happen, right? Like, that's what you're talking about. Yeah, and and the thing is that you, inheritance was a great middle ground because it was I, I want to say it was cumulatively, it wasn't six months, was it? it was March to August, so that would that would in five months. Yeah, that was a good space. That was a good space. That was it, a it, good was, space. it was a long, long discovery process. It was for sure. And you know what's interesting is that we ended up we did end up coming back to some of the stuff that was correct originally, but with a different sort of mentality about how to put the whole together. And I remember when you were in test, you know, Texas doing some of the text test screenings and like some of those discussions were really hard and like that was brutal. You know, I mean it's hard to go through many edits of a movie, but I'm really happy with where we got with it and I'm I'm very proud of it. That those are some of the questions I wanna ask you about. What was your your perception of those conversations? those conversations with you and me or yeah okay real briefly my like i still use inheritance as a model of like we sat with a long assembly for a long time and we kept showing it to people and people were not responding well to it and we knew we had good material and we knew we had just by the nature of it being long like once we got due to a time that we kind of thought this the movie was eventually going to be we can make something work within this framework, but just when we were showing it to people, they weren't digging it. And, you know, I had been working in this indie world where we just gradually brought it down and everyone just kind of signed off on a certain point. And what had happened, I, the, the big lesson I came from this distinctly was we went into a screening that I thought was a complete waste of time. And we showed it to, to dash 
Dash's girlfriend, who now wife. Um, right. And and th- I remember they were talking through the movie, and I just remember texting you while they were talking, like this this is not working. <laughs> and we got through that screening, and they had only good things to say. And up until that point, we had been eliciting a lot of negative comments, which is how, to be fair, how I work is not necessarily the get best, um, the best uh, um, bedside manner, if you will. <laughs> but not not the best. If, if editor as psychologist model means right. I suck at my job, <laughs> and, and I remember telling you all the positive things they said, and like both of us getting some energy off of it. And I was like, oh, they got it. They finally got it. And this may have been like, I don't know, uh, three-fifths of the way through the process. Totally. Past the halfway part. And I just remember that next week was when we finally started cutting a bunch of sacred cows. And then we started showing it. It's confidence, man. Yeah, once we started pulling that parking lot scene, we started pulling stuff out and feeling like, okay, right. That's the thing they like. Pull that out. They like this? Pull that out. And then we brought it down to 90 minutes or even 88 minutes, and it started to tumble and work. You know, but, I, but it was I, also it was the confidence level that allowed us to bring some stuff back in, and there was a lot of stuff that was like, you know, you have these negative uh, screenings where you just shit on stuff that is not giving it, you know, the the phrase from our former boss Terry did not have its day in court. You know, yes, and, uh, and things need to have their day in court. And you know what, everybody's and it's like honestly i think i used to feel resentful about this but now i really don't and i'm nothing but grateful anytime somebody gives me feedback whether it's on a cut or a piece of writing or whatever it is is like everybody's a fucking critic listen to what people don't listen to the general mm. cuz what i think what it was too is is that texas screening was with some smart film people too and when you have sometimes people that are very like keyed in and they they have an idea about you know, their own ideas about films and their own ideas about how stories should be told. Um, I've learned over the years to really listen to the criticism, but don't listen to the suggested solution. The note behind the note. Don't listen to the note. Listen to what it is that isn't working for them. There's something about this sequence they don't like. It doesn't mean their solution to the sequence because we ended up doubling down on some of the whole, you know, Native American magic of it all and actually kind of going for it with some of that heavier logic. And because it's a genre movie, people did fill in some of the blanks and it did start to work and sort of take flight after that screening you're talking about because we started to trust it more. And I think that, really perspective is everything because of like i didn't know blinders we didn't get a negative review out of the uk we got 18 reviews there was two of them that were mixed the rest of them were positive i absolutely could have never told you that that was going to happen i you know what i mean you don't know until you know you know even though we had done some small test screenings and friends and family screenings you lose sight of something. Even if you were working on the fucking Godfather, you were fucking <laughs> making the exorcist. You're still like, I don't know. Is this working? You, like, you know, this- I just, one of the first movies we watched when we sat down was the exorcist. I remember too, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. of course. But dude, I think that was a good learning process mm-hmm. for both of us in so many ways. And it taught me, like, I think that the, the thing, you know, that it brought out that was really good is, again, back to the Terry example, is like you have to have that determination internally to get through those things. If somebody's negative opinion or some critical comment is going to is going to tear it all down for you, then it's not going to work out like then you, you shouldn't be doing this. 
You know, it's like you have to be able to like because I do remember feeling gutted by some of those early screenings, you know, and then feeling very relieved when we got through the woods on all that stuff. So. So what was the path to inheritance to blinders then? I think with blinders, really, the biggest thing emotionally is I just wanted to have a little bit more fun. I think it was like, like bring more comedy into it, I think, because I love dread. I love things that are dreadful and anxiety inducing. But but I think with blinders, um, the idea was, you know, let's just kind of do something that's a little bit more playful. Mm. And so I think that that was the goal, because I do have a relatively commercial leaning in terms of the stories that I gravitate towards. And I think with Inheritance, you know, the reason that it was hard to market and it was hard to make much money off of it, frankly, was because it was sort of an in-betweener. And it's a thin line between having something fresh and having something that falls between chairs. You know what I mean? Like you can mm -hmm. have something where it really lands for like, the, look at how like much Get Out lands, right? It's a social commentary drama, but it's also a fucking thriller that's just fun. And so that could have landed as sort of an in-betweener. But I think what happened with Inheritance is critics were very nice to it. Critics really liked that people that had a strong film IQ got the movie, you know, because they got, they had enough going into it, you know? And then I think that for the, the genre audience that was really looking for more of a straight up haunted house movie and more of maybe a body count or something, it didn't work. And that, you know, and that was, you know, whatever, live and learn. Well, I mean, I know I always made the argument that, um, uh, there's this genre of intellectualized horror out right now or yes. psychological horror where every horror has to be a metaphor for, mental illness or something along those lines right now. For sure. Yep. Yeah. But so, but with blinders, so was it like how long in between inheritance of blinders was there? So I think inheritance was, you know, 2017 is when we, it was released. And so I think it was only about a year, year and a half. So I, um, had a little period of time at my job where I knew that a new project was starting. Um, I was basically, you know, we, we hired somebody that was going to be sort of my new boss or one of my new bosses. And so I had this period in early summer that I could see coming about six or seven months ahead of time. And so I just decided that we, we were very fortunate with blinders. We put the whole thing together in less than a year, like from soup to nuts. Like we just, I decided I had this idea that, Oh my God, creepy rideshare driver. And I wanted to work with these two actors, Vince and Mike, that I love. And I've seen them do improvs together. And we've done some sort of exercises together, um, you know, in rehearsals. And so that was it. I think I think that it had probably been about a year and a half or two years since we'd shot. Maybe two, two and a half years since we'd shot Inheritance. But it only been about a year or so since. Um, was it was Dash a co-writer on this? Yeah, Dash is a co-writer uh, and co-producer with me on Blinders. How many scripts had you two written together in between this? We've written a lot of scripts together at this point. <laughs> You're like, I, I don't have a number. I, I know. I'd say it's like five or six features and then maybe three pilots. Um, so it's like, you know, 10 or 12 things that we've written together over the years. And it's a lot. And we still write independently. I'm, I'm writing something right now, a horror, a horror really kind of out and out 
a you know haunted object horror film with my buddy Dave. Uh, his name's Dave Farino, and he you know he's had shorts play at Fright Fest, Scream Fest, uh, Scream Fest, Sitkies, all the great genre stuff. And so he's trying to develop a short of his that did really well at Scream Fest into a feature. And then Dash is also working with another writing partner on a pilot that he's doing. So it's fun because we're able to still collaborate together a lot, but also support each other. Uh, you know, I just read his fifty-two page Bible for some new series he's trying to work on, you know, which I wouldn't do that for everybody, but I'll gladly do it for him or you or people that I really care about. So, yeah, I, I didn't know how much I wanted to go into this because I haven't submitted anything to it. But like, I feel like you it's like me, you, AJ. I don't know who else is involved in this. Like, this is a good writing circle. We send each other our stuff to each other. It is for sure. I mean, absolutely. I think that, yeah, the the three of us for sure. And I, and I, and I love having that. I mean, I think that it goes again back to like, you know, AFF community of writers, you know, writers are funny people like writer. It's writers are odd people. I've been to a lot of WGA events and it's funny. It's like, well, we, we have like these WGA mixers where they invite like writers and then like development people and they just try to get them to mingle. And it's mm-hmm. fucking hilarious because it's like, there's a bunch of like awkward antisocial people that are jammed into like this, you know, Hey, we got you guys really nice catered food. Uh, everybody dress up and put on your name tag and then awkwardly mill about this space, trying to start a conversation, you know? And so I think when you get your writer group, when it's those three or four people that you really do trust their feedback and you care about and you see eye to eye enough to, you know, whatever, like you cherish that. I cherish it so much. So what was the editorial process like on Blinders? Did you, what were, okay. I, I, I kind of want to parallel with the screening process. What was the screening process like too? The screening process with Blinders. Yeah. So that was funny. And it was funny. You brought up Dash's uh, uh, girlfriend and wife's response to the first one. Cause she, there was a screening at her house with some of her friends and Dash's friends that didn't know about the movie. That was very helpful. But with Blinders, the editorial thing I met, um, I brought on a composer named Devin Johnson, who was a guy I actually went to high school with. He worked for Hans Zimmer for five years, almost in the same way that I worked for for Terry. You know, he was very much, you know, what, what he did is Hans would hand off projects to these sort of junior composers and say, you go record this for three days and then send me a bunch of stuff. And you go work on this sort of stuff, send me a bunch of stuff. So he kind of came up on, in the ranks under Hans and had a great, he's a tremendously talented guy. I'm very happy with the score. And so I've been, uh, I've been listening to Hans Zimmer's masterclass. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah, I saw the tra- Yeah, I was thinking about taking that too. I sent it to to Devin. Told him I was like, I, you know, you've been through this, but here you go. Yeah, yeah. no, but he 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 kind of he has this great story about uh, like he, he always makes sure some he wants to be helpful to people getting him coffee as long as they know to get him coffee, and then um, there's a certain point where he'll let them try something in. Like he describes one guy who worked with him on pirates of the caribbean where he's like oh he it's like the guy was like i want to try something uh after everyone left home he's like oh sure and he came back the next day and they played it in front of everybody and like brokheimer and gore bravitsky and and um hans zimmer turned to the guy and was like okay you're never making me coffee again (laughs) nice that's how he does it i mean i think that it's you know, you could look at it, you could look, you could be cynical in the way you look at it and be like, hey, he's getting all this, you know, amazingly talented semi-free labor. But I think he really does, you know, um, there's a lot to be said for mastery and, you know, the way of people kind of coming up as, as, as you know, uh, 
you know, juniors under a true master and then him helping them build out their careers. I think it's a great system. I, I think he's awesome. Uh, but anyway, the, the, all that was to say is Devin introduced me to uh, this guy, Jeremy Edwards, who ended up being our editor. And at the time, Jeremy had just come off of editing two episodes on season one of Rami for Hulu. And, oh, shit. Yeah, and he had worked with Joe Walker on on 12 Years a Slave and had also, and he was the assistant editor on 12 Years a Slave and the assistant editor on Arrival. And he was looking to basically get a first, you know, a feature lead editor credit somewhere. Those that are the credits you editor. told me about where I was just like, well, shit, you're, you're, yeah. you're moving on up. No, I mean, he was great. He was, he was great because I also knew that similar to like myself and to you, we'd put, I, we'd all put in our hours as like hardworking people for other people. Right. <laughs> you know, it was like, we'd already busted our asses really hard assisting other people. And now we were all, it was the first time Devin mostly does, um, you know, historically he's done a ton of video game work and a ton of advertising work, but this was his first, um, you know, first feature too. So it was just, I wanted to bring in people that, you know, were willing to work at a pretty reasonable rate, obviously, you know, and, um, but they would really want to have a dog in the fight and feel that this was more than a paycheck. And so um, it really grew organically. And it's so nice because Vince, the guy who is the star in Blinders, is now like amazingly close friends with Devin and Jeremy, the composer. Really? Yeah, like they hang out more than I hang out with them now. I'm like, what the fuck? Um, <laughs> But it's great. So it just, it did turn, you know, it was like, I think that that'll always be my hope is that I can work with friends and, and, and people that I really, you know, care about and enjoy their company. I think that that's mm -hmm. where that came from. And that's the easiest way to have fun in the process too, also. So, exactly. so what, it's going to show it at AFF. What, this is, this is also one of the other big reasons is you're one of all our friends. There's a lot of our friends that have movies they had finished that were, on the way of going to the festival circuit before before COVID hit, much less after, you're one of the only people I know that not only got a movie on the circuit during COVID, but you got it on a pretty high profile festival. So how yeah, are you? I'm really happy with with AFF being the launch point, but I will say, in all reality, everybody should know it's like you know, out of 30 submissions to festivals, I think we got 25 rejections or 24. You know, I mean that's how this goes, right? We didn't get South by. Uh, we didn't get Sundance. We didn't get, you know, Sitkis, which I really wanted. You know, there, there's plenty of things, you know, but then of course, Fantastic just shut down entirely. Fantasia, you know, kind of accordion their slate. So there was a lot of changes on the festival side where I'm like, well, that's just out of my hands. I mean, if they, you know, it is what it is. Um, but, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that what we just did is we just took uh, the path that we knew to took, that we knew to take. And, I, I thought that, you know, maybe with AFF, there was going to be some cool networking we could do because I worked for Malik and Michael and, you know, Vince are from Austin and Antonio are cinematographers from San Antonio. And he went to UT. Uh, he, sorry, he didn't go to UT. Michael and Vince went to UT. But the point is, we had a lot of Texas connections, but none of that ended up mattering. Like they didn't and they, they just accepted us because they liked the movie. And then I told them all this other stuff, which I had submitted as part of, you know, the original submission. And they had even they hadn't even read any of that. They weren't even, that's, you know, that's been my experience with a lot of this uh, South by and a little bit of Austin Film Festival is having been there for so long. You assume there's some local province and it turns out that's not the case at all. So like exactly. I was surprised. 
it's surprised. totally a merit-based admission into the festival. But how much before you got into EFF, how much were you trying to figure out a change in the formula? Like, that's the thing that scares me right now. It's like, it's, and I'm talking about in terms, not even making movies, but getting jobs on the indies that I was getting jobs on before this, where it's like, I worry that the festival circuit is dead now. I think it's it's rewritten. I think it's going to be a a, a revised thing. And also just, you know, just like, you know, people are learning about remote work these days, people are never going to go back to the office the same way they did before COVID, you know? And I think that there's just going to be a post-COVID you know, reality where maybe it's, you know, the festival, certain festivals go away, certain certain festivals are, you know, uh, reduced in scope, uh, you know, whatever it is. But what I will say was what was big for Blinders and what, what I was surprised by pleasantly is Fright Fest was a huge launch pad for us. And we actually, the thing that was the biggest difference between uh, Inheritance and Blinders is we got hit up by uh, distributors, sales agents, and and plenty of other people started coming out of the woodwork right after the Fright Fest thing was announced. So that didn't happen with Inheritance. With Inheritance, we had to chase, you know, uh, opportunities a little bit more. Whereas this is like, we have several offers like on the table right now. And we're trying to figure out which one we're going to do. And I think the movie's going to get picked up. And so, you know, I'm sort of confused by that because, (laughs) you know, because it goes against a lot of the logic that I've had in my head for like seven or eight years about how these things come together. You know what I mean? Like I thought I needed like like the, the, the distributors we're talking to, they think it's great we're playing at AFF, but that doesn't really have any impact on whether or not they're going to make an offer on the movie. Like they're just like, oh, okay, we like this movie. So it's interesting. It's not what I this goes to my next question. Um, for your earlier point about if the studios or the mid-budgets or even the indies lose their opportunities, we're in a thriving, thriving time with the streamers. Like, what is, is there a pathway where the festivals go straight to the streamers now? Because, I mean, Sundance have been going in that direction for a long time. Totally. And, I mean, there's I, as much as I want to doom and gloom the festivals, like, we're going to get back into a giant room and watch movies again, one way or another. That's going to, I know I am. I a hundred percent have to do that again. (laughs) So yeah, I agree with you. We need, we can't lose the theaters, but I think you make a really good point. Like what I noticed this year, right. is like on Netflix, you saw they have like a new section. That's like Sundance highlights, right. Where, you know, maybe there is more direct uh, collaboration between New York film festival festival and criterion or hulu or whatever like all these different platforms out there and i'm sure we're going to see more and more of that because really the money is all there on the streamer side right so it's like i think that that's that's what's upending the system is that you know we now are in a subscription model world where the whole previous kind of box office model is being upended a little bit you know like netflix might find it totally worthwhile to spend 45 million dollars on some movie because it gives them a little more prestige this year you know they look at the data and they're like oh my god we're not making much money on this movie at all but it's rounding out our slate and we make more money than god so we can afford to throw that into the mix with everything else you know we can so put think- money into a library title and then have criterion release a physical copy of it and as soon as criterion puts their imprimatur on that then suddenly our library titles now vaulted so into criterion yeah, yeah exactly exactly um yeah yeah uh that was 
I mean, did you have anything else? I was kind of curious. I want to, I kind of want to ask you if you've had anything interesting you watched this year, but no one's watching anything interesting this year. It's like Bill and Ted was great. Tenet was yeah, disappointing. Bill and Ted was great. But I'm just staring at, I, I don't know. This These days, it's like the world itself is too much of a train wreck to tear, tear your eyes away. I, you know, Heidi and I have been watching a lot of West Wing because I, I have some like deep seated fantasy need. That for can't be good. People. That cannot be good for you. Man. No, it's not. It's probably masochistic, but it's like, do you remember? You know, I, I don't even remember, but it's like, wouldn't it be amazing if competent, moral people were doing things right now? That would be awesome. You well, know? even just a basic like, do you remember the shit we thought was important in the late 90s? Right, exactly. Exactly. Like everything is just, it's a stress reducer, honestly, in a weird way. But, um, but no, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I think uh, I, I just hear one thing I'll say. I just watched um, Ben Wheatley's uh, The Sightseers on Criterion over the weekend. Nice. It's very nice. And, I, I, uh, yeah, yeah, that was fun. That was a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed that watch a lot. Right mm-hmm. up my alley. <laughs> Well, cool, man. Um, so Tyler Savage, I uh, want to thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Shane. This was a blast. Yeah. I love, it. love you. Love you. Miss you, man. Glad for you having me on. Brother. Yep. Thank you, sir. And uh, yeah, keep me posted and let's uh, we'll keep in touch. We'll talk soon. Stay safe out there. Bye.